We are not yet what we will be. I want to speak for a few minutes this morning about restoration. Restoration is one of the great themes of the Bible. Of course, the Bible's got many great themes, but one of the great themes of the Bible is restoration. The way that God takes broken, hurting, damaged human beings and with salvation... With redemption, he starts to fix us and restore us and put us back together the way that we're supposed to be, to move us toward who we are meant to be. Now, in every church, and I go to a lot of churches, I gave, I used to work for Kodak, uh, not the bold guy, the, the, um, that was Kojak, wasn't it? I used to work for Kodak and, uh, 22 years ago, I gave that up and went into full-time ministry there in in England, started traveling with my guitar and uh, singing songs and going to different churches. And every church you go to, there's always a few amazing Christians. Do you know the ones I mean? Like the, the absolute perfect ones. And if that's you this morning, if you're like one of the amazing Christians, you can go now and get coffee. It's okay. We love you. The rest of us will just have a little chat together around Scripture. Because maybe some of you are like me, and you know that you're not there yet. There's further for you to go. And God's still got some work to do in our lives. I, um, I like new things, but I prefer restored things. You know, if someone comes up with a brand new car, I go, oh, that, that's nice, that's cool. But whenever someone has a really old car that's been all beaten up and they restored it, that sort of fires me up. I'm the same way with all kinds of things like that. Pieces of furniture. If someone has an old piano that was damaged and they've restored it again, it just encourages me. It does something in me. I love the theme of restoration. We're going to look in Luke chapter 15 at the story of the prodigal son. And I know for many of you, this will be very familiar ground. Uh, But this is one of the favorite, one of my favorite stories that Jesus told. The story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. It's the story of a young man who's looking for life. And he thinks that life isn't at home. He thinks that life is out there somewhere. And he's going to set off on a journey and find life. And he goes to his father with a strange request. He says to his father, hey, rather than me waiting for you to die, can you give me my inheritance now? I've been thinking of asking my father-in-law the same thing. But uh, I already know the answer to that one. Uh, But anyway, that's kind of a strange request. But in the story that Jesus gives us, Even stranger, perhaps, is that the father says, yes. If you want to do life your way, son, go ahead. You want to head out and look for life, off you go. And so the young man heads out looking for life. You know, we've been falling for that idea ever since. We fall for the idea that we're really going to find life, that life is out there somewhere. It's never at home. Do you remember when you wanted to get a job 
and you needed a job and so you got all your friends together, you started to pray and you said, come on, pray, pray because I need a job. And then you got an interview. So you said to all your friends, pray for me because I've got an interview on Wednesday and I really want to do a good job at the interview. And so you went to the interview and you felt nervous. Do you remember? Some of you are nodding. You felt nervous in the interview and, and you, you, you kind of get a phone call the next day that you've got the job. And so you phone your friends and you say, hallelujah, my prayers have been answered. I've got the job and you're excited and happy because you've got this job. And now you're three years later and you're driving to work on Monday morning and you say, I hate my job. Why have I got this job? Because the job has become familiar to you. And so you start thinking, man, I bet I would be better off in that other company. I bet I would be better off working over there. Life is always somewhere else. Some people do it with churches. They go to a church and they go, wow, this is great. I love this church. The pastors are wonderful. The the musicians are amazing. Everyone loves each other. I love this church. This is the best church ever. And then as a few years go by and you start rubbing up against a few other people, uh, broken, damaged people just like you and me, you start to go, wow, mm, this relationship stuff's a bit difficult. I bet that church down the street's better. Uh, That's where the life is. I bet I would be better off over there. If we're not careful, it can even happen in our marriages. You get married and you say, wow, this is where life is. For better, for worse, for richer or poorer, sickness and health, this is where life is. And for a while, it's great. And then it becomes familiar and it becomes routine and it becomes bills to pay and life to live and relationship issues to solve. And if you're not careful... Start looking elsewhere. I bet my life would be better with her. Bet my life would be better with him. We fall for this idea that life's out there somewhere and we've got to go find it. And that's what happens to this young man. He takes the inheritance. He heads out looking for life, doing life his way. And here's the funny thing about the story. For a while, it works. I mean, it works just fine. Have you ever found that when you try to do life your way for a while, it works? You can get by just fine for a while. Things will happen good. Things will go well. You can be lucky. Things will work out the way you want, but only for a while. In many ways, when we try to do life our way, it's an illusion that we're actually living. It's an illusion that we're actually making life work because we were created to not make life work on our own. We were created to only make life work with the Father. But we live in this illusion. I was telling the guys in the first service that when we flew over here, Danae and I and our our two children, uh, we were in the middle of the Atlantic, Oh, I've got to tell you this little side story. Once I was ministering in Texas, and a guy asked me, he said, do you live in England? I said, yeah. He said, how long did it take to drive to get here? (laughs) It's true. 
Anyway, just came to mind. Uh, we were in the middle of the Atlantic, you know, flying up there at 35,000 feet or whatever, and we hit some turbulence. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll panic. That'll help, right? Like if I worry enough, that'll contribute to keeping the plane in the air. And, and I look over, my wife, she's there with her headphones on watching the movie, not worried at all. And I thought, well, that's not fair. You should be worrying as well. Come on, we've got to share the burden. Have you ever been on a plane and you've hit turbulence and you held onto your seat tighter as though you were holding the plane in the air? The crazy thing about that is this is just an illusion, isn't it? Your worrying isn't doing anything. When we think that we're making life work without God, it's just an illusion. It's not real. Eventually, the wheels come off, and the wheels come off for this young man. When the money runs out, when the famine hits, he ends up getting a job that's not his ideal job. He's feeding the pigs on a farm. And he's so hungry that even the pig food looks good to him. You know you're in trouble when the pig food looks good to you. What does God do with us when we're in that place? When we're broken and damaged by our foolishness, our sinfulness, what does God do? I want to suggest to you this morning that what God does is he restores us. We're not used to the idea of restoration. Do you remember when you were a kid and your TV went wrong? Do you remember what you did when your TV went wrong? You phoned like this. <laughs> you phoned the TV repairman. And the TV repairman came out and fixed your broken TV. But what do you do today if your TV goes wrong? Throw it away. Get another one. We live in this disposable world now where when things are broken, we just toss them out. We get rid of them. And if you're not careful, that idea will creep into your psyche and you'll start to think that way about God. That when you're broken, when you've got it wrong, when you've messed it up, what God must do is kick you into touch and find somebody else, right? Wrong. God doesn't throw broken things away. He fixes and restores them and makes them the way they ought to be. I want to give you four things, maybe five, but try and do four. Four things from the story, from the scripture that Jesus gives us about how God can restore us. The first one is this. God brings us to our senses. God restores us by bringing us to our senses. It says here in the story in verse 17 that when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. For this prodigal son, it's right at the tough time of life that he comes to his senses. I wonder if you've experienced times where God has used pain 
where God has used your circumstances to bring you to your senses. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I walked into my music room and I picked up one of my guitars to play. And uh, I started to play it and it sounded really funky. It sounded all weird. It was buzzing and you know, making all kind of noises and stuff. And so I was trying to tune my guitar up, but it just wouldn't tune up properly. So I started looking at my guitar and I suddenly saw on the back of the neck, this big crack in the back of the neck. I think what had happened is one of my kids had run into the music room, knocked it off its stand, although they deny it, uh, and then put it back on again and, uh, and then run out, you know. And um, by the way, I have two children. Chloe is 10. Uh, she's my little princess. Benjamin's eight. He's for sale. Uh, and uh, no. So anyway, I pick up this guitar and it's cracked. And I start panicking. Start thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this thing? So I go to the fount of all knowledge, Google. And I typed into Google, this is true, how to fix a broken neck. And I got all kind of medical websites. And so I put how to fix a broken guitar neck. And I got this website by a guy. He said, I'll teach you how to fix it. He says, you can fix it. And he had step-by-step photographs and instructions on how to do the job. And this is what he said. Step one. You have to finish the break. He said, if you try and repair it before it's fully broken, you'll never do a proper job. It's got to be a clean break. He said, you've got to snap that sucker. So I, all of the musicians, your buttocks just clenched a bit, didn't they? I know they did. (laughs) I was there in my room. Pop! And now I've got a really broken guitar in two pieces. If you were on holiday in England and you were walking by my house in that moment and you looked in the window and you saw me snap the guitar in two, you'd probably have all kinds of ideas about me, wouldn't you? You'd think, what a brute. What a nasty guy. Why has he just done that to such a beautiful instrument? But you don't know the whole story. You'd make assumptions about me. Maybe you'd think I was unloving and uncaring and angry. But actually, I'm trying to fix what's broken. Sometimes when life hurts, we make all kinds of assumptions about God. We think, God, why don't you love me? Why am I going through this? Why is it hurting so much? But you know, we have to come to a place in life where we are beautifully broken. When you get to the end of yourself and you say, Lord, I quit. I can't do it anymore. I can't make life work anymore. I'm tired. Here I am. I'm broken. You know, I think God rejoices in those moments. God smiles on us in those moments because that's when he can start his best work in our lives.
Number one, he brings us to our senses. Psalm 51 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so if you're here this morning and you're feeling a bit busted and a bit broken, you need to know that God doesn't despise you. He wants to fix you. The second thing is this. God calls us to something greater. He calls us to something greater. Right in this moment in the story in Luke 15, the young man, the prodigal son, starts to remember who he ought to be. He sort of says, what am I doing here? This isn't where I'm supposed to be. He says, man, in my father's house, there's more than enough food. The servants eat better than me in my father's house. That's where I'm supposed to be. He starts to get a vision of something greater in his life. Vision is something that God uses to pull us forward, even in our brokenness. You know, you need to pay attention in life. You don't pay attention, you get stuck somewhere that you're not supposed to be. A few months ago, I was invited to Ireland to sing and speak in some churches over there. And so I went to Manchester Airport, and it was pretty quiet uh, when I went to check-in. So I started talking to the check-in agent. And uh, he noticed my guitar, and so he asked me what I do, and I was telling him. And he printed my boarding pass, and he said, he said, now, Mr. Parsons, there's this code on your pass. Do you know what it is? I said, no. He said, that means you're in the fast track. Do you know what the fast track is? It means you're one of the special ones. It means you're not like everybody else. He said, when you're in the fast track you do, and you come to security, you don't have to queue like everybody else. He said, you can go through the right-hand door, and he said, you can bypass the great queue and go straight to the front. So I felt really good. Anybody ever had one of those? Did it make you feel good? So I thought, right, let's go over there. No, not me. I've never had one of those. I went, instead of going through the right-hand door, I went through the left-hand door because I wasn't paying attention. And I found myself at the back of this huge line of people queuing up through security. So I thought, no problem. I know what I'll do. I'll go back. They don't let you go back, do they? Those security people, once you've stepped through the door, you're there. And so I stood in line for 45 minutes and every so often I would see somebody walk through the fast lane. And I think, that's where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be there. What am I doing stuck here? Sometimes we end up stuck in life, not because we're dreadfully sinful, but just because we're not paying attention to our lives. We're not paying attention to what we've been called to. We're not paying attention to the privileges we've been given as followers of Christ. We live with our heads down instead of our eyes open. You ever found yourself saying, man, what am I still doing here? One of the things I hear all the time as a pastor is this. I thought by now, dot, dot, dot. Fill in the blank. 
all kinds of things. I thought by now life would make sense. I thought by now I'd have more faith. I thought that by now I would have read the Bible all the way through. I thought that by now I would have developed a robust prayer life. I thought that by now I would have found somewhere to serve in ministry. Do you ever see somebody else ahead of you and think to yourself, that's where I ought to be? This morning, maybe God wants to give you a greater vision of who you should be. I know you're not there yet. I'm not there yet. But we need to look forward to see who God has called us to be where we should be. Uh, Several years ago, my cousin, who lives in London, fantastic musician and singer, he passed several auditions and he made it into the Queen's Royal Choir. And that's Her Majesty the Queen, not the rock band Queen. Uh, And uh, the Queen has this choir, uh, choristers, schoolboys, and they sing at all the kind of royal events and functions and services, weddings, all those kind of things. And my cousin uh, got a scholarship was in the Queen's Royal Choir, and it was a great deal because it meant that Buckingham Palace paid for all of his education through to college. And so it was a good thing. One day, my auntie phoned us up and said, there's a special event at St. James's Palace in the Royal Chapel, and we're allowed to invite extra family members. So would you like to come? And we said, why, yes, I do believe we will (laughs) come. And so, you know, you've got to go to the palace, haven't you, if you get an invitation. Now, you can't go there with jeans on. You've got to put on a shirt and a tie, and you've got to look the part. So we kind of got all dressed up, and we went off to London, and we had these invitations that let us into the palace. Once we got into the palace, we were met by this butler-type chap. And he said, ah, you must be the Parsons family. And we said, indeed we are, old boy. (laughs) And uh, he said, oh, great. Well, follow me. He said, we have a place for you in the strangers gallery. (laughs) Get that. They've got a place called the strangers gallery. Can you imagine that in Shreveport? Freeport Community Church, if all the visitors this morning would like to sit in the strangers section. So we go up into this high gallery overlooking the chapel. It was a good view. And the service was the inauguration of the Bishop of London. It was a kind of a very formal bells and smells type service, but it was fine. I kind of enjoyed it. And after the service, we thought, well, that's over now. We're going we're gonna to go and eat somewhere. So we thought, well, we'll just turn left out of the, the chapel and we'll head out of the grounds and we'll go and eat at Burger King. Just as we were about to leave, the butler dude, they, they don't call them that, but anyway, he came up and he said, ah, oh, excuse me, Um, will you be joining us in the palace for lunch? We said, why, yes, uh, we do believe we shall. (laughs) 
And instead of turning left and going to Burger King, we turned right and went into St. James's Palace, into a ballroom, something like this. And there were all kinds of dukes and duchesses and lords and ladies and other such things, people there. And we had a fabulous time, wonderful time, talking to people and eating. It was great. Here's the crazy thing, though. We were invited to the palace, but we almost went to Burger King. Some of you think that's pretty dumb, right? I mean, imagine being invited to the palace and going to Burger King. And yet, you know what? Sometimes Christians do that every day. You are invited to a royal feast every day. You've been given a place at the table every day. King Jesus says, welcome every day. So why is it when we have that invitation that we think life is at Burger King? Some of you keep going back to Burger King and then coming back to God and saying sorry and go back to Burger King again. It's not because you're bad. It's because you don't know who you are yet. And when you get a revelation of who you are, you won't want to go to Burger King anymore. You'll want to go to the palace every day. God gives us a greater vision of the future. The third thing, Moving on quickly is that God embraces us with grace. As God restores us, he embraces us with his grace. This is good news for me. And this is good news for you. The prodigal son, as he goes home, I wonder what's going through his mind. I mean, I'm sure he's expecting a dressing down. He's expecting a clip across the ear. He's expecting a few, you idiot, what have you done moments. That's not what he gets, not in the story that Jesus gives us. In the story that Jesus gives us, the father comes running to meet the prodigal and embraces him with grace. Puts a ring on his finger, he puts shoes on his feet, puts a robe on him. This is the gospel. This is the good news of who our God is. Some of you may be here today and you have an angry vision of God. You think God's mad. You think that when you mess up, when life goes wrong, when you are broken, you think God's mad at you. God's not mad at you. God loves you. God's for you. He's not against you. He always has open arms. When Benjamin was small, about two, three years old boy, now he could be really cute sometimes. And then there were all the other times. I mean, he could be like the devil. I think he inherited it from Irvin. It's like, because it's genes and genetics and stuff, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, sometimes I would be so frustrated with him because he wouldn't do what I wanted him to do and he'd be rebellious. And when he got about three years old, he learned that word, no. He wanted to do it his way. 
But you see, here's the thing. At the end of every day, Benjamin would get tired. And it's happened every day. I miss it. He doesn't do it anymore. At the end of every day, he would hold up his arms to me and he'd say, Daddy, hold you. Hold you. What do you think I did in that moment? No, my child, I shall not hold thee, for thou hast transgressed me. No. As a parent, you live for those moments. God loves those moments. When we come to him broken and we say, hold you. That's what he does. He embraces us with grace. Number four, he grounds us in the truth. He grounds us. He establishes us in the truth. If you and I are ever going to be restored and become who we're supposed to be, we need to know the truth of who we actually are. Not what we think of ourselves, not what the world thinks of us, not what somebody else says about us, but who we are. The Father speaks over the Son. This is my Son. Let that echo in your heart this morning. You are God's child who was lost but is now found. Who was dead but is now alive. You were something but you're not that thing anymore. You are now new. You are now restored. You are now forgiven. You are now healed. You are now whole. That's who you are. God establishes in the truth of who we are. That's why reading the scriptures is so important. Irvin and I, we were having a chat yesterday afternoon, had a cup of coffee, and we were talking about the world we live in and life in England and life in America and some of the difficulties, political difficulties, social difficulties. But the thing we both kept coming back to was the Word of God. This is who you are. Not what the economy says about you. Not what a political party says about you. Not what your circumstances say about you. This is who you are. We ought to read the Bible not because it makes us good Christians. We ought to read the Bible because it tells us who we are. We get established in the truth through the word of God. And as you get to know who you are, you find yourself changing. When I was a kid, I was very, very shy. In fact, I still am shy. I'm, not, I'm an introvert by nature. I'm not an extrovert. I'm not the life of the party by any means. But I was ex- extremely shy, extremely self-conscious. I, I remember when I was a teenager, I was six foot tall. I was very skinny. I had beautiful auburn hair. People can be cruel. And uh, I remember being spotty like most teenagers. And then when I was 13 years old, my voice broke. And when my voice broke, it came out like, like now. 
this big booming voice doesn't go well as a 13-year-old. It's not a cool thing. And the kids I went to school with, man, they gave me such a hard time because I had this big booming voice. And I used to hate it. And I used to tell God I hated it. And I used to say to God, God, why do you make me this way? God, why do you give me this big booming voice? Why can't I just have a nice normal voice like other people? And here's the crazy thing with God, because God is so awesome. Is that as God works in your life and he moves you forward, when I was 20 years old, I stepped out of my Kodak job into ministry. And for the last 22 years, I've made my living with my big booming voice. I've preached in churches all over world, the world with this big booming voice. I've sung to lots of people with this big booming voice. It's probably just the voice God wanted me to have. The thing that caused me pain, actually, God was trying to redeem it and use it. And maybe this morning, the thing that's causing you pain, if you'll let God, he'll redeem it, turn it all around and use it for his glory because that's how awesome our God is. You're going to make it. Fifth and final thing that I want to say very, very quickly. I didn't say it in the first service, but I'll say it in this. The fifth thing that God uses from the text to restore us is he gathers us into joyful relationships. The first thing the father does isn't get out the accounting system to see how much he's lost. The first thing he does is call for a party. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate and let's do it together. If you and I are going to become the men and women we're supposed to be, we're going to become it not in isolation. We're going to become that in joyful relationship. That's why church matters. I don't know about America. In England, it's becoming very fashionable to not go to church anymore. I'll just be a Christian at home on my own. I'll just do church at home on my own. I don't think that the Apostle Paul would have understood what on earth you were talking about. He'd say, what do you mean you're going to do church at home on your own? What are you talking about? You can't grow in isolation. You can't be restored in isolation. See, the truth of the matter is this. I need you in my life, and you need me in your lives. We all need each other in order to become who we're supposed to be. And so God restores us by gathering us into joyful relationships. If you're hurting, don't isolate yourself. Find some people that you can rejoice with. Find some people who will put their arm around you. Go and have a coffee with somebody. Enter into dialogue with somebody because that's part of how God uses us to stir and refine and grow and mature each other. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message has equipped and encouraged you. For current events and other resources, visit ccpeople.com. And remember, the best is yet to come.